Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My next guest has just joined us on the line. Tony Burke, MP, is the Shadow Minister for the Arts in the Labor opposition here in Australia and joins us to talk about uh, Labor's concerns about the federal government's arts stimulus package. Tony, to begin with, the sector were asking for a significantly larger amount than the government has given us. They've given us $250 million. Is this $250 million too little too late uh, look, the reality is it's not it's not even 250 million dollars because 90 million of it are loans that have to be paid back uh, and you've got to question how many people will take up the loans in the first place so it's 160 million dollars I before I sort of analyze where the problems are I want to say the fact that we've got anything is a big step from where we were uh, for a long time the government was arguing there wasn't even a problem uh, for the music industry, and they were talking about workers in the industry effectively as though they were engaging in a hobby. So to have got to the point where they're acknowledging the problem for all the flaws of, the, of, the, of what they've put forward, I do want to acknowledge we are better off than before they were doing that, and now that they've acknowledged it, then I think there's an opportunity to get right into the detail of, OK, how can this be done better? Because effectively there's... There's three different stages for the industry. There's the help people need right now during, during lockdown. The second stage is how do you emerge? And then the third stage is how do we make sure in the future the platform for music and performance is stronger than it was in the past? Now, effectively, at those three stages, this program is entirely engaged at the second stage. And, you know... We need to make sure that artists make it through the crisis, particularly now that the lockdowns in Victoria are going to last much longer than what had been anticipated when this package was announced. You know, not a dollar will flow in an area where lockdown continues because it's all about how do you come out. And the first thing that I think we need to, to look at is, OK, where are the big gaps? And the biggest gap is while the lockdowns are happening, effectively the industry is shut out in many ways. Now, in terms of gaps, uh, yes, this package does seem very much targeted on the live performance sector, including uh, commercial theatre, the major performing arts organisations and uh, touring, whether of international artists or the staging of music festivals, for example. It does seem to largely overlook and ignore individual artists, uh, small to medium companies and organisations as well. Uh, and uh, as we heard from Nava earlier in the program, people from the visual arts sector as well. What's also concerning from my perspective, I guess, uh, with uh, and putting on for a moment the, my chair's hat at La Mama Theatre, I'm comparing the funding that the federal government has announced in Australia, which, as you say, is billed as $250 million, but is effectively $160 million plus a loans package. The UK government has recently announced a $1.57 billion 
pound package, which uh, even once you do the maths uh, from uh, pounds into dollars, it's approximately nine times the amount of the money that the Australian federal government has uh, given the sector. Why do you think that the, the federal government seems unable to grasp the needs of the arts industry across the country and indeed seems unable to grasp the very makeup of the sector and some of the unique challenges that face the arts sector here in Australia? Yeah, one of the... And here's where sort of your... I shift between, you know, is it deliberate or is it they, they just don't understand? And I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I shift between the two. Uh, I was stunned when... Uh, Scott Morrison claimed when he was announcing it that you know, it was only a week earlier in a Zoom call that he discovered that uh, comp- that businesses in this industry weren't having a 30% downturn, they were having a 90 to 100% downturn. Like, that was obvious from the moment the restrictions on gatherings were put in place. Uh, so, I, you know, I, that's what he said. If, if we take him at his word then the extent to which they've failed to engage is is phenomenal. Uh, so I, I guess I move between two different views, uh, to be honest. The, the first is I am always suspicious of the extent to which with the arts they're just engaging in a culture war. Like, yeah, I don't think it's an accident that the three sectors that keep saying they're being left behind in different ways have been universities, the ABC and the arts and entertainment. I just don't think that's an accident, Uh, whereas industries that employ fewer people have managed to get targeted support. Uh, But the other thing is uh, the way they've designed JobKeeper effectively puts a fence around many of the groups that you've described. So small to medium companies have effectively been under attack ever since the Brandis cuts uh, back in 2014. Uh, And that that's been a, a long-term attack from the government. But when they introduced JobKeeper, the moment they said that you, if you were a casual, uh, you would have to have had 12 months' employment, they effectively knocked out massive parts of the sector uh, because so many people, not just performers themselves, uh, but various artists, uh, work as either short-term casuals freelance or freelancers. It's, they are two principal forms of employment. Uh, and if you're working gig-to-gig, event-to-event, festival-to-festival, it is almost impossible to get inside JobKeeper. Now, the government has a response to that, and I, I think it's worth unpicking, um, because they then say, oh, but if you can't make JobKeeper, you can make JobSeeker. And it's a, you know, it's a similar amount of money. It's less, but you know, depending on what add-ons you get, it, it, might, be, it might come out to a similar amount. Uh, now, some people won't be eligible at all because of partner's income, but there's a bigger issue with JobSeeker. Because of mutual obligation, the purpose of JobSeeker, if you're in, in an industry that is having a downturn, is to push you into a different industry. That's what JobSeeker does. The purpose of JobKeeper is to keep you there so that you're still available to the industry when the reboot happens, when things open up. And so when they give their offhand, oh, well, job seekers still available, so tick, we've looked after the sector. No, that is, in fact, an active decision to shrink the number of people in the sector because, by definition, 
with mutual obligation, that is what Job Seeker does. And I think that point has been largely overlooked in the debate. Now, one of the other concerns that I know you've raised particularly is following uh the Senate hearings into the federal government's response to COVID-19 and its impact on the country. One of the revelations at the Senate hearing uh, was evidence from Dr Stephen Arnott from the Office for the Arts, who stated quite clearly that the new funding that is available in the federal government support package will not be available until at least September, the end of the, the first quarter in the new financial year, given that people who were affected by bushfires are still living in Carabao vans because money has not flown to them yet months and months later. Are you equally concerned that the art sector will not just be waiting until September to receive money from the federal government's art support package, but many months later? Oh, it'll be a long time later. Uh, and sadly in Victoria and in particular in Melbourne, uh, I'm worried about how they do the, the, the bidding for this because what it could very easily mean is with lockdowns, you know, who knows what will happen in the rest of the country, but if where we're at at the moment continues, you could end up with a situation where outside of Victoria, uh, you know, small companies, uh, big companies, whoever, are in a position to bid for events and to try to get access to the money in September but because the lockdowns are at a different stage in Victoria, the companies there aren't in a position to to put in applications. So we could very easily end up with a circumstance where Victoria, uh, which has been you know, such a strength for the artistic community around the country, is in fact largely locked out of eligibility or the capacity to be able to apply because of where lockdowns are at come September. So there's, there's problems all over this, but essentially I, I think the simplest way to look at it is this, this way. Uh, it took 100 days from when the industry shut down until they announced a package. It will probably take 100 days and an extra 100 days, so you're looking at 200 days from the time of the original lockdown before many dollars here flow at all. And in Victoria, it could even be another 100 beyond that. Now, when you're looking at that length of time, you have a very real situation where bills are mounting up on small companies, bills are mounting up on venues, and bills are mounting up on individuals and freelancers. If people aren't given an extra direct line of assistance to be able to remain in the industry during lockdown, we will have a sector that looks fundamentally different on the other side of this, and the principal characteristic of the difference will be it will be smaller. Yeah, you know, it. If think about it, if you uh, even for small to medium companies, uh, many of which don't own their own their own premises, if venues start to disappear during this time, where does that leave them? Um, because they're then you know, bidding with bigger commercial operators for fewer and fewer spaces to be able to to be able to use to exhibit or to or to perform. Uh, so there's some real risks here, and, and this is why I think the the biggest principle which will help us through all of this is if we can make sure that we are helping people now, helping people to stay in the industries now. Because, you know, downtime 
in the arts community, like where there's downtime in the sense of not exhibiting or not performing, doesn't need to, in fact, be downtime. It can be a time of, of research. It can be a time of, of really hard work in writing, uh, in, in creating. That means on the other side of this, we have a huge body of work ready to go. Uh, but if we go down job seeker path, and we force everybody simply to spend this time applying for jobs that are not there in other industries, then at the end of this, not many more people will have found themselves employment. Uh, some will, and we will have lost some people from the industry altogether. And no one will have been given the support during this time to use it for writing and for creating so that we're, we've got this whole body of Australian stories ready to go on the other side. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Tony Burke, MP, who is the Shadow Arts Minister. Uh, Tony, to wrap up the conversation, we've obviously heard that there are significant flaws in the government's approach to supporting the arts sector, including uh, their recent uh, and kind of underwhelming, I have to say, uh, support package for the arts. But you've just used the phrase that uh, we need to make sure we're helping people now. How is the Labor Party uh, helping Australian artists now? What are your actions? What are you taking to make sure that there will be an art sector on the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic? The most important part of our calls has been, and we've moved motions in the, in the Parliament on it, we've called for it every time Parliament's returned, and that is to open up JobKeeper to people in the arts and entertainment sector who are currently shut out. Some people have been eligible, that's true, but principally the people who, the more creative your work is, the less likely you are to have found your way in, uh, and opening up JobKeeper is the biggest issue. And, and this is where, you know, I've spent a lifetime arguing about the arts being important for our stories, uh, for, for our soul, for, for oxygen, for our community to define who we are, how we see each other, how the world sees us. But if that argument's not going to resonate with the government, can they at least understand that the individuals concerned here are workers? They are part of an economy that functions as an ecology. And if you cut out any section of it, you harm the whole thing. Tony Burke, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this morning and uh, we will just have to wait to see kind of whether the government listens to you and to everybody else from the sector who is talking about the need to do more. Thanks again. Thanks for your opportunity, Richard. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Ben Byrne is the founder and director of Avant Whatever Festival, which is on now until July the 12th. It's a biennial festival. It's free. It's online. Ben, Avant Whatever? I mean, I'm very familiar with Avant Garde, um, or at least I pretend to be, but uh, tell us a bit about the festival. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's Avon Whatever because it's focused on new and experimental practice, but also keeping things fun, uh, being open and accessible. Uh, it's, it's a festival of experimental music, sonic art and design, and uh, this is the third edition. The first two were actually presented in the performance space at Triple R, and this one, uh, coronavirus... Uh, situation and all uh, is happening online. How quickly did you have to adapt the festival program for an online environment as opposed to a live performance? Well, quite quickly, obviously, we've all had to uh, 
make adjustments and, and figure out what we can do. Uh, I actually made the call in March uh, to take the festival online. It felt clear to me at that point that it wasn't going to be possible uh, to do a face-to-face event in July, at least uh, like I was planning. Fortunately, uh, my work is very focused on digital media and my interests. Um, sound and music, obviously, but, but always with a focus on the digital and working online, and that was always going to be part of this festival. So we were in a pretty good position to do it, uh, but also the artists have been amazing. Almost every single artist that was booked to be part of it uh, is still part of it. Some of them are doing different versions of what they had planned. Some of them have shifted their ideas. So it's been a very busy three months, but a very exciting three months because we've been able to continue. Now, I'm intrigued by the fact that you said, yes, it's a festival of experimental music, sonic art and design, but you've also referenced the fact that you wanted it to be fun and accessible. Now, some people might get put off by the by just the, the very phrase experimental music. Some people with the preconceptions they have or past experiences may think this is not for them. Why is it important to make Avant whatever accessible and fun, as you said, and, and to, to play with ideas rather than trying to make them deliberately abstract or obtuse? Uh, well, the thing is, obviously... Fun is more fun, isn't it? And just because uh, it's experimental doesn't mean uh, it can't be fun. And also that the work itself, but also the way the festival presents it, can't um, be really focused on the experience for audiences. And I would say, Adam, whatever is a festival for you if you're interested to hear new things. It's basically that simple. When I say experimental music, I just mean music where you're not sure what's going to happen. And I find that really exciting. And, and the best of that kind of work, I think, has an incredible power that, you know, listening to the same song over and over can't have. That's a wonderful thing to do. I love to do it as well. Of course, I have favourite records. Music uh, of that kind has a really important place in all of our lives. But I'm really interested in, in, in music and, by extension, different forms of sonic art and design as as a way of, of uh, setting up listening, of, of listening into things that we might not otherwise hear, voices that go unheard, uh, listening to environments, approaching online culture in different ways. Well, the fact, as you say, that uh, listening to something that is going to be unpredictable as opposed to following the traditional dynamics and structure of a, of a, a, of a pop song, for example, that just the simple act of thinking to yourself, I don't know where this is going to go, is in itself a, a, a musical adventure and one that we should perhaps all be embracing more. Exactly. And as I suggested, I think it, it's one that offers a lot. It really um, can help us to connect with the world, to be open to, to what we encounter. And it's also an experience that I think is incredibly valuable right now, as so many of us here in Melbourne and around the world uh, are largely sequestered in our homes. Uh, the, the chance to, to encounter something different, something new, uh, is a really valuable one. Talk to us about some of the artists who are presented by Avant Whatever Festival this year, which, as we said, is on now until the 12th of July. 
it's a really exciting lineup of, of uh, people from all over the world. Uh, quite a number of, of artists based here in Melbourne or nearby, uh, as well as uh, as a number of internationals. Of course, one of the exciting opportunities, you know, amidst all the challenges at the moment for me uh, as a curator and organizer, is is being able to work with people who I might not have been able to work with because uh, people are more focused on doing online work, and so it doesn't matter. Uh, where people are. Uh, to that end, tonight uh, we have composer and percussionist from the US, Sarah Hennies, uh, presenting uh, her work Contralto, which uh, is an hour-long uh, AV composition that she produced in collaboration with a group of transgender women. And uh, the word Contralto refers to the lowest female singing voice. Uh, and the idea of the piece is to really question what that means, uh, the assumptions people can fall into about the relationship between gender and sound. How is a voice necessarily female and how are there particular limits on the bounds of that sonically? And it's a very powerful work, but a good example of what we're just talking about, a lot of fun as well. Uh, it's really driven uh, by vocal performance and uh, Henny's worked with with this group of women, uh, having them riff on various vocal exercises and then using that to develop the other parts. Uh, so we'll be presenting that work at albumwhatever.com and also simulcasting it on uh, YouTube. And then afterwards, we'll have a live Q&A uh, with Sarah again at albumwhatever.com. Now, also looking at avantwhatever.com, I noticed that uh, you've got uh, a work being presented by uh, Beck Ferry, for example, audio producer, broadcaster, uh, and kind of audio, well, I guess sound artist is perhaps, would describe some of her practice. Yes. Um, yeah, Beck's work is really exciting. Uh, their work, Local Time, uh, is connected uh, to PhD research they're doing at RMIT as well and uh, has really grown out of their work as a podcaster and uh, on Triple R, of course, as a broadcaster as well. And Local Time is an installation, really, browser-based installation that runs every night from uh, sunset uh, to, to sunrise the next day. And what Beck has developed is a way of listening in to Footscray and its surrounds. Uh, and so uh, what I mean by that is Beck's run a whole lot of field recordings and edit the, edited them and arranged them and then coded this website that plays recordings and mixes them appropriate to the time you're listening. Uh, so they refer to it as a kind of real-time listening. They are recordings, but if you uh, go to avonwhatever.com and click on the link for local time at sunset tonight, you'll be able to listen in to Footscray at sunset. You can go back and listen at midnight uh, or in the morning or, indeed, leave it running all night. Now, I've noticed also that you're, despite the fact that the festival has shifted online and can't happen in a physical environment now, particularly not now that uh, Melbourne has gone back into lockdown, that you're still presenting a festival club. How important is it to make sure that people, both artists and audiences attending the festival, still have the opportunity to share ideas, discuss one another's work, uh, potentially be inspired to collaborate together over a conversation which would normally happen over a drink in a physical festival club? 
hugely important, obviously. I've spent a lot of time uh, over the years in my work, but particularly in the last three months with this current situation, thinking about what makes a festival. And obviously bringing together a whole lot of work, uh, having a chance uh, to um, present work side by side so that that resonances, themes uh, and so on can come out uh, is a big part of it. Uh, But the social side of it is huge as well. And so it became clear to me quite early on that that was something I really needed to focus on uh, with the festival happening online. And we spent quite a lot of time, uh, I've worked very closely with Milo from Public Office, who's, who's worked on the website, on um, h- how we could do that. And what we settled on is, is setting up a video conferencing server that, again, you can uh, just uh, access by clicking on the link at abonwhatever.com. Uh, and that opens up uh, a video chat in... Um, in your browser, on your device of choice, and uh, you can see who else is there, much like uh, you you know, you know, would do at a, a festival club in a bar or something like that. And you can actually create your own room to hang out in as well. Um, a, a key interest for me uh, with digital media and particularly online culture and, and you know, therefore for, for this festival uh, is how we can keep a free and open internet. So uh, it's very important that the festival is free and accessible, as we've been talking about, but that extends to the fact that you don't have to log in, you don't have to use a particular platform. Uh, we've been very generously supported by the Australia Council for the Arts, so you don't need to pay either, um, which is great. But in particular, you're, you're not kind of pulled into some sort of commercial space. So that, that festival club, it's more or less like Zoom, except it's free and open source. You can just use it as you please. For more information about Avant Whatever, an online festival of experimental music, sonic art and design, go to avantwhatever.com. The festival's running through until the 12th of July uh, and over the next few days, yes, as we've heard, there'll be a range of works, including the new AV composition, Controlto, which, uh, with a Q&A afterwards. Uh, so that will definitely be one to check out. So avantwhatever.com. I've been chatting with Ben Byrne, the festival's founder and director. Ben, thanks heaps for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks very much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. My next guest has just joined us on the line. Esther Anatolitis is the Executive Director of NAVA, the National Association for the Visual Arts, who work with and support artists across the country in every state and territory. Esther, thank you for joining us this morning. How is the visual arts sector coping? How badly have individual artists in particular, but arts organisations in the visual arts sector, been impacted by COVID-19? Oh, good morning, Richard, and always good to get to talk to you. Look, it's not great, and I think that at the moment it, there's um, you know, fairly um, inconsistent experience across Australia, especially in Victoria, of galleries that are just open, they're having to close again. It's just been so heartbreaking reading everyone's emails of, uh, you know, kind of care and connection, but, you know, sorry, this has had to happen. Um, I think the major worry for me is the massive disruption 
to artist practice, to, uh, to, to kind of pathways to, you know, sort of uh, markets, you know, the, the possibility of selling your work, uh, the um, cancel, cancellation of art fairs, the impossibility of even for the galleries who are open for holding openings so that um, artists can connect with audiences and, 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 and potential buyers of their work. Uh, the fact that um, such a massive portion of the visual arts, craft and design sector were never eligible for income support through JobKeeper and um, uh, the cash flow boost and other things has meant that um, uh, it's been extremely difficult for public galleries, university galleries, you know, the hit on art schools. So all of those things are about um, those pathways to developing and sustaining your practice, reaching audiences. Um, and then alongside that, we're seeing some really ambitious, well-connected, um, artist-led movements around just like quite a radical revaluation of artist labour, working conditions, um, uh, the way in which artists work, a number of different platforms emerging. And so I'm, I'm excited about uh, the, the, the resilience and the focus that, that artists are showing at this really difficult time, given there's just been pretty much no support at the federal level. At the state levels, we've seen... Um, you know, some, some, some great packages. And I should say big shout-out to the Australia Council with the Resilience Package, which I understand the overwhelming portion of that. Um, you know, they've had massive applications from people who've never applied to the Australia Council before, which is amazing. Now, in terms of the impact on individual artists, for example, so focusing on uh, kind of on the individuals and their artistic practice. You mentioned, for example, the uh, the fact that openings can't happen. Now, some people will go, oh, a gallery opening, surely that's just an excuse to kind of to drink uh, free or cheap wine uh, and, and, <laughs> and do a bit of gossiping about the sector. But the fact that, as you say, uh, an opening represents a really valuable opportunity for an artist who already has representation to meet with other gallerists, to meet with art collectors and buyers, uh, and to network with their peers. It forms, uh, it's important in terms of social connection, but it's the lack of, of openings like this is then clearly going to impact on people's careers. And that's just one example of the way that COVID-19 yeah. uh, is preventing people from doing their job. Yes, they can be locked in the studio and work, but if you can't then sell your work and connect with collectors and buyers and gallerists, for example, that's a challenge. It's such a good way of putting it, Richard, because it's, it, it is that connection. And so particularly regionally where um, people are just, itching for their gallery to open so that they can go and have that, you know, extraordinary contemplative experience, be together, respond to work. But then also for artists, if you've got representation, so if you work with a commercial gallery, then you've got a gallerist who is focused on, um, you know, making those connections with already existing collectors who already know your work. But if you don't have representation and um, uh, you, you're wanting to, you know, connect with new people and new audiences and this period is a massive disruption to that and of course it's not just you know the commercial galleries that, that, that this is a you know an issue for public galleries um, state-owned uh, galleries um, our national cultural institutions um, one of the big 
concerns that I have around, and I'm sure we've all been reading about the cuts at the National Gallery and the other national cultural institutions because of the impact of efficiency dividends over the years and the problems at, at this time as well. If state-owned galleries and public galleries can't afford to invest in their own collections, if they're not um, investing in acquisitions right now, that is also a massive disruption to uh, not just the entire art market, but to the livelihoods of artists. Artists, you know, some of our most successful artists might only sell a major work every now and again. Uh, and artists who are getting by on a work that, you know, um, that might, they might work on a smaller pieces at, at lower value. They might work on larger pieces, substantial pieces, uh, pieces to, to present in the public space. Um, it's a very, you know, lumpy, as we keep seeing that word being, it, 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 it's a lumpy, inconsistent income. Um, and then, of course, you've got artists who are about to present work in festivals, art fairs, biennials, uh, and so on that have all been cancelled. And that work tends to be installative, ephemeral, you know, of a, um, you know, of a quite unique nature. You can't sort of, you know, uh, prevent or sell that work somewhere else if that's been cancelled. So, yeah, but massive, massive disruption. Now, uh, last month, NAVA circulated a letter signed by leading visual artists, which, amongst other things, called on the federal government to uh, introduce a, a $500 million recovery fund accessible to all arts organisations and all art forms. And that letter also uh, called for the government to increase the Australia Council for the Arts grants budget by at least $70 million per year. Uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, the federal government did finally announce a long expected and I would have to say long overdue art survival package, a bailout package for the sector. It was only half of the $500 million that NAVA were calling for. It was $250 million. How, in terms of the value that this support package represents for your sector, for the visual arts sector, um, does it stand up? Does it do the job or is it too little too late? Oh, look, it's not just too little too late, but it's very, very difficult to see how anybody in visual arts, craft and design, either individual artists or organisations, will be able to access this at all. So um, while NAVA did call for um, half a billion and this package is $250 million, it's actually only $160 million plus loans. Very few arts organisations are in a position to apply for a loan and certainly no one's in a position to uh, try to support themselves through this crisis by going into debt. Um, so that's um, not going to be particularly helpful. The package also, when we look at its components, um, the components that are about um, organisations being able to apply to support work, it actually has to be new work or new tours. So it doesn't actually address uh, the crisis that is happening and that, and, and that continues to unfold. And then the $35 million component of it, which is um, to address uh, solvency issues for, for organisations. That's only for sector-specific organisations, sector-significant organisations, I think they've called them, who've got a substantial record of long-term funding from the Australia Council or the Office for the Arts. Uh, and so... It's it's you know really difficult to imagine how um, some of the you know really pivotal organisations who directly build capacity and work with artists etc will be able to access any of that. Now, you've also expressed concerns at a recent uh, Senate uh, hearing into the federal government's response to COVID-19 uh, that 
so many artists and arts workers in the visual arts sector will be unable to access uh, JobKeeper, for example. I believe the statistic is only 64% of Australian... Uh, sorry, that 64% of Australian galleries were unable to access JobKeeper because they're operated by local governments, for example, or universities. Yeah, yeah, with well, thanks to the National Public Galleries Alliance for putting these figures together. Of our public galleries in Australia, so the ones who are non-commercial, non-profit, um, 54, no, 51% are um, in ownership structures where they're owned by local government, and then another 13 are owned by universities. So that's 64% of Australia's public galleries have been unable to access JobKeeper, the Income Boost, or any of those support packages at this time. Um, and then, of course, universities um, are major employers of artists uh, as academics, as workshop presenters, etc. Universities house our leading art schools. None of them have been able to access anything. And then compounding that, of course, is the recent announcement about the more than doubling um, of the cost of a humanities degree. And so you put all this together and it is really, really troubling. So it's about not having been able to access the support that's needed and then this has really long-term implications. You know, those galleries, especially our regional public galleries, um, are a big focus of community life and connection, local tourism, which is going to be so important at a time of border closures and so on, um, uh, that um, economic recovery, let alone the cultural and social, is going to rely on us being able to get across the state and find each other and connect with each other and enjoy and appreciate the work of artists and so we do need a far more visionary approach at this time. Uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Esther Anatolitis, who's the Executive Director of NAVA, the National Association for the Visual Arts, and we're discussing how the visual arts sector has been impacted by COVID-19 and how they will or will not benefit, and it's sounding uh, more and more like will not benefit uh, significantly from the federal government's $250 million art support package that was announced a couple of weeks ago. Esther, uh, to wrap up the conversation, obviously NAVA uh, not only represents artists but advocates for them. What are some of the immediate steps NAVA is taking at the moment? moment to try to continue to convince the federal government that more needs to be done to support the visual arts sector uh, during these difficult times. Oh, absolutely more needs to be done. And I should say, it's not just the visual arts who missed out on that package. It's really difficult to see, you know, how literature, a range of independent uh, music and theatre, anyone, small to medium sector, etc. But in terms of our next steps, um, next week on Thursday, the 16th of July, we'll be holding a two-hour mini-summit called What's Next for the Visual Arts, Craft and Design Sector, where representatives across the industry and also from government will be speaking about what are the key... Uh, structural issues, uh, what has this period exposed and what needs to happen next. Our special guest speaker is Rupert Meyer, who of course led the Meyer inquiry into the visual arts and craft sector that led to some substantial policy change. So that's going to be a very important event for working with government to think very long-term uh, and forensically about uh, what is needed next. And then, of course, um, Arts Day on the Hill. This year's Arts Day on the Hill is Thursday, sorry, Wednesday, the 12th of August. We have been presenting our weekly advocacy workshops on Wednesday evenings at 4 o'clock uh, Eastern Time in preparation for that. Everyone can get involved. All the information's on our website, and it's all about having a 
big national critical mass focus on positive, constructive advocacy for the arts to support all MPs uh, in coming up with the much-needed next steps. We need to make sure that JobKeeper doesn't end uh, at the end of September. We need to make sure that it's broadened so that everyone can access it. And we need to make sure that the next package that is announced uh, is truly one uh, that can... um, build the capacity that's needed um, to support um, all of Australia's future at this time. For more information about the National Association for the the Visual Arts, their campaigning, uh, the grants they offer and the insurance packages they offer for artists who are members, uh, jump online, visualart.net.au. I've been chatting with Esther Anatolidis, NAVA's Executive Director. Esther, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Fleur Kilpatrick joins us on the phone. It's been a while since Fleur and I caught up. Fleur and I normally review theatre together on this program every fortnight, but with live performance in mothballs, it's been a little bit harder to review work. But I was really keen to catch up with Fleur and see what she's doing, and there's a few things we can talk about. How are you, Fleur? Hello, I'm good. I like the way that we just, like, to catch up, we have to do it on the radio. Like, <laughs> so now everyone gets to listen to our catch-up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are in South Australia at the moment. I am. I, I um, evacuated early um, months ago, so I've been here a long time, purely because I just, you know, didn't want to um, get shut off from my family. Um, and my work was entirely online for a semester, so I've been. I'm feeling very fortunate right now, but my heart is with Melbourne, and I, I miss Melbourne. And I was so about to come back, but at any rate, um, we will see what happens. We shall. We shall. <laughs> All doing our best. Now, one of the things I thought it would be good to talk to you about, because not only um, when you and I review work together and kind of discuss work on this show, we come to it from different perspectives. I'm a journalist and a critic and and an avid audience member, and you yourself are a theatre maker and playwright. So we kind of meet in the middle of our overlapping interests to talk about work from different perspectives. But I wanted to talk to you for a moment about what you imagine the future of theatre is going to be in Australia in the short term and then the longer term after the impact of COVID-19. We're already seeing in some states uh, up in the Northern Territory, for example, Brownsmart Theatre have begun staging play readings again with the aim of moving Mm -hmm. to full production soon. And I know that in states like South Australia and WA, where they've had a, a much smaller Uh, load count in terms of people impacted directly and personally infected with the virus. They're also looking to open up theatres and live performance sooner than certainly here in Melbourne. But how do you think this will shape the way theatre is made and and presented and performed in the the coming months and even a year or two's time? Yeah. um, So first thing I want to say is I'm going to talk pretty darn positively now and there is plenty of negatives we could talk about, but I I want to sort of look at some of the positives because they do get lost a little bit here. And I want to start by saying what skills artists have to combat this moment, which is our creativity, our flexibility, um, our resilience. We, we, it's kind of like we've been training for this all of our lives in some ways. So I, and I keep having this image, someone tweeted, I think, about sort of 
that, uh, you know, actors are constantly doing these exercises in the room of like, you know, fill the available space, you know, uh, keeping away from each other and being and moving flexibly and filling the space available um, and they were kind of tweeting it in a way to be like some of you clearly didn't spend time doing this at university but I also have had that image in my mind of actors just and an artists just being so light on our feet right now as we attempt to navigate this world and change plans every month um, so I guess for me I've been thinking a lot about this motto. My motto of the year is if you can't have red, have blue. Don't have watered down, wishy-washy pink. So what we never want is our, as artists is to be making stuff that makes people say oh, it would have been great if they could have done it this way but they couldn't. So we always want to make work that feels like it's being created in its kind of ideal scenario, which is what's so beautiful about something like the Dear Australia project with the postcards from Australian playwrights. That was the format in which it was envisioned and that was the format that it was presented in. So you can feel that it is in the format it's meant to be in. So I can't really speak to, you know, there's so much we don't know right now. I can't really speak to what theatre is going to look like in a year's time and a lot of that will rely on will the government get its acts together in terms of funding? Um, are there going to be donors that come to the table? What are the long-term financial impacts going to be for those companies? But for us as artists, I think there's some interesting things to consider because... I'm just monologuing at you, Richard. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I think a lot about this because I think that something about COVID is it's had a really democratizing impact on us all as artists in that we're kind of all beginners right now. And in some ways, that's a really scary thing. But in other ways, there's a freedom to being a beginner and starting from scratch and going, well, I can't do what I used to do what can I do now? Let's throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Now, one of the things that got me thinking about this was a post uh, you made on Facebook, on your personal Facebook page. I won't go into the details because mm. it was personal. <laughs> but you acknowledged the fact that when theatre makers are newer and younger, they put on shows... Uh, with the smell of an oily rag and there's mm. so much passion and love and then as you advance in your career, you wait for a commission from a, a major company yeah. which may only happen every two years and you, you kind of lose that let's yeah. get some friends together and put on a show in, I don't know, in someone's bedroom or mm. uh, in uh, a garage in Collingwood, wherever it may be. Uh, and yeah. I wondered whether you think the, the need to make art in the next 6, 12, 14, 18 months, whatever it may be, we'll, we'll maybe see a resurgence of smell of the oily rag made for passion, not for profit theatre. I mean, I don't know if any artist is quite making it for profit, but to break even. Well, I, I, by profit, yeah. I guess I'm talking, I'm, yeah. I'm acknowledging the, totally. the the financial imperative that the major theatre companies have, for example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of necessary. For instance, I think Melbourne Fringe are doing amazing things with their sort of pants on and versus pants off program that they're putting together for Melbourne Fringe. But something to be aware of if you're, 
proposing a work for Melbourne Fringe is, you know, what if someone tests positive in the hub and the hub gets shut down? You kind of need to be creating this work that is so flexible that you go, okay, let's, all right, I've got these three props that I need to tell this story. I can move and tell it under this tree in this park. Um, So I think that comes back to that we need to be really good at storytelling, that we need to be really good at connection of those things that artists do really well. Um, An exercise that I would really suggest, sorry to like move into teacher mode, but an exercise I would suggest for artists is, you know, writing those like columns of what can this medium do, what can't this medium do. Say if you're looking at making a work for Zoom, um, which isn't the only medium by any means, but like what can Zoom do better than theatre? Like one thing, it means that you have access to actors who are in different states or even countries to you. Was there an artist you met at a festival three years ago in New Zealand that you've been wanting to collaborate with ever since? Like now's your time to reach out and say, do you want to spend a day just experimenting and see if we've got an idea together? Um, So there's breakout rooms as well on Zoom. There is ways of getting audience participation and audience feedback in a much quicker um, way on Zoom. So I think it's really worth us stopping and thinking about how we can make theatre nimbly and how we can make it absolutely cheaply on the smell of an oily rag without investing so much that it would be a really major hit to us if we suddenly had to change it or cancel it. Like, we've just got to throw stuff at a wall and see. I also wonder about the... the dynamics of theatre and the tone of theatre in the future. Will audiences after lockdown and pandemic just want a diet of comedies and musicals and uplifting stories or will we still want to grapple with work that is dark and challenging and provocative? And similarly, what are the requirements around social distancing on stage in the coming months for dancers, for example, uh, uh, or for a sex scene or a a fight scene in which people would normally be tumbling around the stage together, grappling and punching one another or grappling and kissing one another? Um, How do we make that kind of work. It's, there are so many unknowns at this stage, and I really do wish I had a crystal ball to answer yeah. some of these questions. Well, just to be, you know, once again, a playwright in the conversation, I think that I think that where we'll go wrong is if we go, well, I want to do this play that has all of these elements, and, you know, COVID's not going to stop me. Instead, going, like, what's a new work that I could make, or what's a work that is written for these conditions and for this, these times. I, I think our audiences are really smart and nuanced and some people will absolutely want feel-good comedies and just to sort of celebrate being in a community together. But some people will want to be challenged. Um, you know, audiences are <laughs> made up of a bunch of individuals. So it's hard to, it's hard to know what they'll want, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> and they'll be really hungry for some theatre when... when when it is offered. 
Now, speaking of hunger for theatre, I've certainly had a hunger which hasn't been entirely satisfied by online work, whether it's yeah. a play reading, for example, or a work, uh, work in development, partially because after endless bloody Zoom meetings during the day, sitting down to watch what is effectively a creative Zoom meeting at night hasn't quite worked for me. But I did watch and enjoy, admittedly dipping in and out the way you do with an anthology of fiction, yep. for example, the recent uh, creation by Playwriting Australia in collaboration with 25 small to medium companies around the country and a bunch of the major performing arts centres. You've already acknowledged it. It's called Dear yep. Australia. It was presented in three parts, live on uh, YouTube and Facebook last Thursday, Friday and Sunday. 50 playwrights from around the country, 50 actors bringing their monologues to life. Fleur, have you watched some of it and what did you think? I have watched some of it. Um, I Absolutely, it's beautiful. I mean, something that I love as well is just the little windows into these different actors' homes and lives and just suddenly you drop in and these people that maybe we, you know, are used to seeing on stage or in foyers or on film, suddenly there they are in their home having a chat to you. Uh, and how artists are responding to this time is really different and really nuanced. So already from just the few that I've watched, they are very, very different takes. Um, I was watching just before Elena Karapetis's beautiful work about this Greek idea of welcoming people into your home but also being a good guest and that Australians have not been good guests on this land and it was just such a beautiful simple and evocative little monologue that she performed herself um again as well I think this beautiful thing about being able to collaborate collaborate across state borders that you've got playwrights from all over the country coming together to create this thing together it's is really gorgeous. One of the pieces that I re that really resonated with me, I think partially because it's a beautiful uh, performance by Belinda McClory, uh, but it's mm. a, a script by Liv Satchel, which is in part three, uh, mm. and it's um, a monologue from a nurse who has recognised somebody on the street uh, but isn't sure where she recognises them from, and it starts out as a simple observation that could relate to any of us during uh, at any time of our lives, not just yeah. in a pandemic. So there's something very specific about it, the way it unfolds, but yeah. quite global as well. And it's, uh, I was wiping away tears by the end of it. It's kind of performed direct to camera using, as you say, the medium of the camera of, of mm -hmm. our familiarity with Zoom and so forth uh, to tell this exquisite, simply observed, deeply moving snapshot story. It's kind of, there's some, and again, I, I haven't watched all of uh, Dear Australia so far. I will, mm. I will certainly watch more. Uh, I yeah. watched some of part one, some of part two, some of part three. But there's such a mm. range of, of voices, of styles and of actors. I think there's, there's a child yeah. actor in one. Uh, Jack Nicholson is voicing one of the later pieces. <laughs> or ex uh, sorry, Jack Thompson, rather. Uh, the Australian actor, not Jack Nicholson. Very similar. Uh, yes. Well, maybe the same thing. Um, but yeah, mm. so just the fact that some like Jack Thompson has been involved in a piece written by Richard Franklin. Uh, and then yeah. you've got actors who are very new to me, uh, young in their career, and then more established people like uh, Kyle Morrison, the former artistic director of Yuri Yarkin Theatre Company in Perth, is performing yeah. a monologue by James Taylor. So it's such a kind of yeah. really kind of... And, and again, as you say, they've used the medium so well. Yes, yeah. 
I want to mention two other pieces of theatre that I've enjoyed from my home. One was by David Finnegan and Jordan Prosser. Um, it was called um, In in 2050, Everyone Will Murder a Pop Star. And it was a creative development. Both of the pieces that I've enjoyed the most have been creative developments. Uh, and they were, I think David was over in England at the time, so they, again, collaborating across the world. It was this kind of bizarre Zoom story that they'd originally envisioned live, but the choices that the audience made in 2020 impacted if we would solve this crime in 2050. So, you know, it would suddenly go to, okay, uh, Richard, you are now the, uh, you're the, um, environment minister, so uh, this is the choice you have. Are you going to decide to do X or um, Y? Um, and then by the end of the play, your choice would be part of if this um, if this thing was solved. As someone that makes participatory theatre, it can be hard to get audiences to participate. And there's something about Zoom where people can literally write their responses, type their responses or give a thumbs up or clap emoji to signify their opinion that actually really makes the um, the barrier to entry really low and makes it able for people to use it in a really great way. Um, and then another piece that I did, which is still very much in development and I don't want to talk too much about or give away, um, but I had this conversation for an hour with a total stranger with just a few little prompts from the artists to keep us talking. And we both sat in the dark in our homes, never knew each other's names, talked for an hour, and it was just beautiful. And coming in the midst of feeling pretty lonely for a while there, it was just the most heartwarming, joyous thing. And that was called, I believe, the dark, dark talk hour. Um, and that's still in development as well. So artists are coming up with really beautiful ways to connect us and really playful ways to connect us as well, like an investigation into a more murdered boy band member in the year 2050. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a couple of pop stars. I wouldn't necessarily want to murder them, but you know, maybe <laughs> locking them away so they could never inflict their music on us again. But anyway, Look, I, I learned a lot about boy bands. <laughs> Uh, now, um, just for people who want to check out some of the work that we've been talking about, Dear Australia, presented by Playwriting Australia, you can go to pwa.org.au for details or just go to uh -huh. YouTube and look for Playwriting Australia and you'll find the three parts of Dear Australia, a series of postcards from playwrights around the country uh, talking and writing about the here and the now. And there was something really intriguing about the specificity of these works. Yeah. Often theatre, because it can take a year, two, three, four yeah. years to get up on stage. Kind of These are works that are so of the moment, so they're definitely worth watching. And, Fleur, if people wanted to... Can people experience in 2050 Everybody Will Murder a Pop Star? Is that archived on YouTube? You or? can... Uh, no, it's not, because um, it's very much a live piece of theatre. Um, but you can absolutely follow uh, David Finnegan um, for opportunities to see it. It was, in fact, free as well. Um, so I'd suggest following David, who goes by David Finnick on Twitter, um, or Jordan Prosser on Twitter to see if they're going to do it again because they have done a number since uh, and they're very creative 
artists and are always experimenting with form, which, of course, serves them really well right now. Who needs to subscribe to Disney Plus to watch Hamilton when there's so much work being presented <laughs> out there online for free? Although yeah. you could also watch Hamilton. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched half of it. I, I paused at interval. I, I will go back and finish it at, at some stage. But, yes, that's my life at the moment. Many things sure. going. I will sure. watch a bit of that. I will watch a bit of that. Yeah. But, yes. Attention to, to, yes, attention to detail. No, it's gone. Don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> Floyd, yeah. it's been lovely catching up. Thank you too, Richard. I look forward um, and to... happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Yes. A couple of days ago, <laughs> I am now 53. How did that happen? I... Yeah, weird. Anyway. Magic. Beautiful. Lovely to Thanks, catch up. Richard. I look forward to Take seeing care. you in the flesh at some stage in the not Someday. the not too distant future. Someday. Take care. Take Bye. care. All the best. Bye. That's playwright Fleur Kilpatrick who uh, joins us in theory, regularly on the program, but everything is disrupted at the moment. But we call the segment Shoot the Messenger uh, and we talk about uh, things that are going on in the world of the performing arts. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 